we've been looking at understanding what the will of the Lord is. A lot of talk. We always, as Christians, want to know what's the Lord's will for me. And the good news is that God has clearly revealed his will for you in the Bible. And so we've been talking about somewhat of what that will is. We've been looking recently at Ephesians 5 and 6. And the will of God for us as children, as fathers and mothers, and as wives and as husbands. And I hope that you've been seeing, and I'm going to repeat it now, that, that this morning we are going to be looking again at, at the wives. But again, this is like, it's applicable to all of us. There are, there are deeper underlying truths and realities here that should guide every single one of us in the living of our lives and should be convicting us and rebuking us and encouraging us and, and um, all, all of the above for all of us. We've seen in particular that subjecting ourselves to one another, to, in particular, the God-ordained authorities in our lives, fathers, mothers, husbands, that that is one of the supernatural fruits. It's a fruit, but it's a supernatural one because it doesn't, we don't come by it naturally. And therefore, it's one of the signs that we are filled in the Spirit. You can't, you can't separate those two things. Our subjection to the God-ordained authority in our lives is one of the ways that we are living out experientially, our growing, in your handout, understanding our spiritual insight into and our perception of God's gracious, saving will. So this is what we're about. We're about growing deeper with an insight, with a perception, with a God-given, spirit-enabled understanding of what his will is for us in Christ. But what is this subjection have to do with God's gracious saving will. God's gracious saving will sounds lovely. Subjection does not have the same lovely ring, at least not naturally, but I pray that it will. I pray that it comes to have that at all times, but maybe especially in our day of what's called a militant and a pervasive egalitarianism. So this idea of level, the leveling of all distinctions in every sphere of life, uh, in, in every sphere, it's had strong, the result is that we have strong negative connotations, even to the point of being repulsive to that word subjection. Or we could think of the word submission, right? That's the, it's the yuck word. It's, it's, it's not a nice one for, for certainly all who are still in their sins. The reason for this is ultimately... And, and just to take it deep, for all of us, it is ultimately our desire for independence, even from the authority of God himself. Now that's not just like to catch us all, to force us into a corner. It's to help us just go deeper into my own heart. If I don't, if I don't, want, if I don't like the word subjection when it comes to other human authorities, you've got to dig deep and say, why is that? And really, at the end of the day, It's because I want independence ultimately. And that's still there for even us as Christians to to a level. It's this desire which is 
know this about yourself. We need the knowledge of man. You know, Calvin famously divided between there's the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Right? And these two things are related. They go together. I cannot know, know myself without knowing God. And I cannot know God fully without having come to know myself as, as God has told me about myself. So it's this desire for independence, even from God, which lies at the root of my sin nature. It makes the very idea of subjection such a repulsive thing. But now here's the wonderful news. Paul says in Ephesians that we are now God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And what are those good works? It's not just going out and working at a pregnancy center. That's a good work. Or, or some other thing like that. But it is... It is being subject to the authorities in my life. That's a good work. Which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them as a new creation. We are new creations. So, my sinful lust for self-autonomy, it's been now replaced with a glad surrender to God. Think about that. That's you. If you're a believer, that's fundamentally you. And with an obedient subjection to him and to his will. That's now, that now defines who we are. We've given up our craving for freedom, for self-direction. Uh, think about it. How many of us, we know, have I really given up that craving? Well, fundamentally we have, and yet we still struggle. Which is really just to be slaves to sin. If I want to be self-directed, that's to be a slave to sin. That's what that is. And we've instead become slaves to righteousness. Compared to the time when subjection was something repugnant to me, now a willing subjection to God has come to define me as a true follower of Jesus. And I, I just I, I want to encourage us with those realities. We we can be we can experience a good measure of probably appropriate conviction because of our sin, but I also want to encourage you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been transformed. You are a new creation. You are now defined by a willing surrender and subjection to God in Christ. And from out of that, from out of that, within that gospel context, Paul commands us to be subject to one another. See, God isn't just playing with us here. He's not just trying to trick us into submission. No, this, this is, these are like the true realities, more real than anything else. This is what makes the Christian life so beautiful. Because it's all in the context of God's work in us making us new. So it's within this gospel context, Paul commands us to be subject to one another as the manifestation of our subjection to God. Ephesians 5, 21 to 22 and 33, we're going to come back briefly just to these verses at the beginning. Paul says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. The wife must see to it that she fears her husband. If you weren't here last week, you're going to wonder why I said that. It's because it's what Paul says. But if you want to know more thoroughly, you can listen to the message last week. We saw last time, though, that in the mere presence of authority, just authority in and of itself, even authority that's of a sinful husband or father or master, 
we have the manifestation of the reality of that ultimate authority of God from which all authority derives. So wherever there is authority, you have the manifestation of the authority of God. It's not the same thing. I'm not saying that. But you have a manifestation of that reality. So subjection to the derived authority of another human being is uniquely and necessarily the expression of that fear and trembling that I owe to God. The fear and trembling I owe to God is expressed in the subjection that I give to the authorities in my life. So when we translate, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, that is deadly to the wife. Because when we do that, We focus all of our attention horizontally on the husband. I do not respect God. Respect is so inferior of a word for God that we cannot use it. So when when we say that a wife should respect her husband, the, the, the emphasis is entirely horizontal. It's all on the husband. And the fact is, husbands aren't... You give respect to people who deserve it. Husbands aren't always going to deserve respect. And now you've got it all focused horizontally. And what is the wife to do? She's left helpless. Instead of focusing the attention vertically on God via the husband, and we miss the link Paul is drawing with the fear of Christ in verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The wife should see to it that she fears her husband. See, there's, there's the empowering context for the wife's subjection. The translation respect in an attempt to make the wife's subjection to her husband more palatable and less offensive empties the wife's subjection to her husband of its freedom and power and beauty. When a wife can understand, and and I'm talking about the spiritual understanding here with a true spiritual insight and perception what it means to fear her husband, which does require a sermon, then she'll be freed and empowered to be subject to her husband without feeling in the chains of, how can I do that today when he's not worthy of it? It's here that we see, and I'm going to do something that I don't often do, don't usually do, and won't usually do. And I chose to do it for a reason. I want to call out a book that was written a while ago. The reason I want to call it out is because it was partly it was so incredibly popular, but, but also partly because sometimes against the foil of something, we come to see the positive a little more clearly. So we see in this the fundamental and I believe the very dangerous flaw in the book that was called Love and Respect, which, which quickly became a national bestseller. It was 20 years ago now, so maybe many of us don't have a clue what book I'm talking about. But some may. It was called Love and Respect. And the basic premise of the book, and again, this is not, this is not a condemnation of the authors. It's, not, it's merely a, a looking at the facts of the book and the title. The basic premise of the book is summed up in the subtitle, The Love She Most Desires. The Respect he desperately needs. 
Well, I'm not leaving it hang just for dramatic effect. I'm leaving it hang because I'm hoping you're thinking. And you're thinking, you're saying, is, is there a problem with that? There's a pretty, I, I can't, it's so big. There is, let me just say, there is no husband who desperately needs respect. And if you tell me you desperately need respect, that's a, that's a problem. Unless this respect is simply the respect that is owed to every human being. Now, in a sense, we all, I suppose you could say we need that respect. We ought to be treated respectfully as human beings. Not the respect that is owed to authority. So when we are talking about the respect, the respect that is owed to authority, I, as an authority, do not desperately need that respect. I don't even need it. He may desperately want it, which again is the sign of an underlying problem, but it's not what he desperately needs. Likewise, let me just put it in another perspective. There are no fathers who desperately need their children's respect. There are no mothers who desperately need their children's respect. The moment a husband desperately needs respect, he has ceased to be a faithful husband. That's, that's how out of line that idea is. And so, let's put it in this perspective. Paul does not tell the wives to see to it that they respect their husbands in order to meet the felt need of their husbands to be respected. Much less to give their husbands what they want. So I want respect. Oh yeah, you can give it to me. Meet that need that I have. Neither does Paul tell the husbands to love their wives because fundamentally that's what she most desires. The author of the book argues that men value respect more highly than love, while women value love more highly than respect. Now, at a certain psychological level, we could maybe start identifying with a little bit there. But this is not about psychology. It's about theology. And so what we end up with, practically, and again, I'm not saying this is what was intended, but practically what we end up with is a fundamentally man-centered approach to the marriage relationship. What I, what I long for us to see is that rather than being a bestseller with a, a, a premise like this, we ought to see this and it ought to fall so flat and empty in comparison to the rich theology of Ephesians chapter 5. What we end up with practically is a mutual egalitarianism, if not a relationship where the wife is in control, in fact. So the husband says to his wife, and again, this isn't their point in the book, but this is practically what we kind of end up with. You give me the respect I desperately need, uh, and I'll give you the love you desire. The wife says to her husband, you give me the love I desire, and I'll, I give you, not, not as in, if you do, I will, but this is a good arrangement. You give me the love I desire, and I'll give you the respect you desperately need. A 50-50 arrangement, possibly 90%, 10% arrangement. Since it is interesting that it's the respect that's desperately needed and the love that's desired. Maybe that was just because it flowed better as a subtitle. That's possible. 
But we ought to be careful in all things. In fact, Paul tells the husbands uniquely to love their wives. Not because their wives desire to be loved. Not because psychology has taught us that about wives. Or even theology. Why should husbands uniquely love their wives? Because the husband is the head of the wife. And because this headship is the context in which he uniquely is enabled and empowered to love his wife. Paul tells the wives to see to it that they fear their husbands. Not because their husbands desperately need or desire to be feared. But because this is what enables them to be subject to their husbands in the fear of Christ. Do you see the need for wisdom here? No amount of talking or explaining on my part can help us grasp this. We will need the Spirit of God to give us understanding. So the word subjection, hupotasso, it means to take a subordinate place in relation to that of another. That's me quoting from a fairly liberal commentator. So you can. You can trust him on that topic, right? It means to take a subordinate place in relation to that of another. It means to place oneself underneath another. It's important to draw the distinction here between a subordinate place and an inferior place. We, we always conflate those two things, don't we? But that's logically irrational. It's, it's not even like, yeah, you're trying to get out of it, aren't you? It's really there, but you're trying to just pretend it's not. No, it's just logically irrational to do that. Grammatically, semantically, the distinction between inferior and subordinate is obvious. There's nothing about this whatsoever that's in any way inferior. In fact, as we'll see later, the differing roles are fundamentally equal. The wife's and the husband's roles in the marriage relationship are, are, are equal. Now, I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, but on the other hand, it is a subordinate place. The wife is to place herself underneath her husband to take a subordinate position with respect to her husband as the one for whom she was made to be his helpmate. It goes all the way back to creation to the goodness of God's created order, the way that he put everything together before the fall. As the Apostle Paul writes in another place, 1 Corinthians 11, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He goes on later to talk about how we all come from each other uh, in, in in another sense. But then he says, neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man, because the man needed the woman. Because it was not good for the man to be alone. So the wife's relationship to her husband is to be characterized then by a spirit, an attitude, a lifestyle of subjection. So the Apostle Peter exhorts wives, let your adorning 
be the hidden person of the heart. And, and by the way, I, I have to, you know, in one sense, there's the whole, there's every one of us listening, children, uh, single adults, older uh, uh, parents and, and grandparents, but then there's also the wives here, there's the husbands here. And we've got all these different, all, we're all listening. Uh, if, this isn't, if this isn't equally or more convicting, and I'm not just saying this to say it, but maybe I'm just saying it as a husband. If it's not equally or more convicting to the husbands as I listen to what God's calling is on my wife. We said this regard to parents and children. How can we as parents listen to God's calling upon our children? To the holy calling our children received. And we ourselves not be, like, convicted. How then can we as husbands listen to God's, this holy calling given to our wives and not be convicted? So Peter says, let your adorning to the wives be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a lowly and quiet spirit. Lowly, referring to the lowliness that we should all have as Christians. A meek spirit, a peaceable spirit, quiet, peaceable, which in God's sight is very precious. I love that. You say, well, it's got precious in God's sight. Make it precious in my sight, Lord. Let me see what you see. Give me understanding. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands. And again, the traditional translation, which is not bad, um, but of a gentle and quiet spirit, that can tend to imply to us today a certain kind of personality. So like a wife, all wives should have this certain kind of personality. It's gentle and quiet and meek and I don't talk and I just do what I'm told. That's not what it's talking about. Meekness and peaceableness, lowliness and quietness, these are virtues, they are fruits of the Spirit that all Christians should possess, men as well as women. And yet, in this context of marriage, in this context, These are the Christian virtues. These are the fruits of the Spirit that uniquely enable, in your handout, enable the wife to live in subjection to her husband. Okay, here's the thing. Subjection to your husband is not some radically weird thing in the Christian life. It's just taking regular, plain old, mundane, everyday Christianity and plugging it in here. That's what it is. It's just about being a Christian in this context now. There's all sorts of different contexts in which we're called to be Christians, right? And what what I find with myself, and I think you find with yourself, is that you're quite content to be Christian in all sorts of different contexts, except for this one or that one or this one. But really, it's just being a Christian. That's all this is in that context. So even as a wife is to be at all times adorned, she is never to be not adorned with a meek and peaceable spirit. So her relationship to her husband is to be at all times adorned by a spirit, an attitude, a lifestyle of being in subjection. So this subjection is, is, is an adornment. We see here then why subjection is a more helpful word than submission. And I, I've, as well as I think it's a better translation of the Greek. 
Subjection is a broader, all-encompassing word, more so than submission. Paul speaks directly to the wives here, not to the husbands. Remember, we said Paul spoke to the children. Paul didn't say, parents, make sure you keep your children in submission, although there is a difference there with parents and children, especially as children are younger. We do keep them in submission. Um, but, But Paul addressed the children. He said, children, obey your parents. Here, in particular, he says to the wives, wives, be subject to your own husbands. It is the wife who must... See to it that she fears her husband. And so again, we bring out this reality that it is, it is not and never is, never will be the husband's task to see to it that his wife is in subjection to him or that she fears him or that she fears God. This is what I always say in, my, in the wedding homily. Subjection is the tool of the wife. It's the adornment that she puts on not the tool of the husband. It is not the tool of the husband, but it is the tool of the wife. It's a choice that only the wife can make out of obedience to God and not to the word of any man. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. So I ask you the question, here's the question, simple one. Why is the wife to be subject to her husband? Why? Because, because he desperately needs respect? Is that why? Because his felt need is to be respected? Man, how did that book become a bestseller? We need discernment. Because the husband is the head of the wife, that's why. As also Christ is the head of the church. Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. So here's the higher authority. All power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. What's the meaning of headship there? What is the the idea of being head there? You see in the language that's used that the idea is of, of, of authority. Authority is at least fundamental to that. But if you read a number of commentaries, I said to my children this morning and, and family, we were talking about this at the table. I just want to say, Paul, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, right? Don't be pressed into its mold. So let's just realize that we're living in a culture where there's a, there's a mold that's pressing tight, hard on each one of us, that's wanting to conform us and our patterns of thought into its mold. And it's succeeding at many levels. And as it does that then, we then open our Bibles and we read the Bible, our mind having already been pressed into the mold of the world. And so we read the Bibles through the mold that the world has succeeded in doing. Instead of letting the Bible be that which presses our minds into its mold. And then we go into the world and transform right through our lives and through the ways that we are living. 
Over and over, I see when it comes to this topic in commentaries and books, we display, we betray the reality that we're just embarrassed of the Bible. And we don't see its goodness. We don't see how good it is. So for many, they go to, and if you read a commentary, they're going to go to all sorts of fancy arguments and historical and all sorts of other stuff, and they're going to say that headship here does not refer to authority. It's, 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 it's a metaphor for source. So as the, from the head flows the source of life or something like that. So that we show an embarrassment of this thing. I was talking to someone recently. I think it's all right to, to say this maybe, but at, at a wedding recently where, where, where it's becoming, even in conservative and reformed churches, where, where in the vows at a marriage, you ask the, the husband, you ask the wife, will you submit to your husband? And then you ask the husband, and will you submit to your wife? Right. And there's biblical reasons given for asking that question. But I think at the end of the day, it's because we're being squeezed by the mold and because we're, we're not able to have that understanding of the beauty of something. And so we feel the need to qualify and to change it and to make it fit what we think is sensible. The metaphor of headship here refers, in fact, to the issue of authority. So one commentator writes very boldly, but I believe very biblically, here in Ephesians 5, the headship of the husband, in the light of the usage in chapter 1, which we just read, the general context of the authority structure of the Greco-Roman household, and I would say also the Jewish household, which was uh, Greco, which was in the context of the Greek culture still, and the subjection of the wife to her husband within marriage in verses 22 to 24. So headship in this context, in light of all this context, refers to as having authority over his wife, thus he is her leader or ruler. Now we define ruler according to biblical definitions and context. When Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, his main point is not to qualify or limit the husband's headship, though there are limits and qualifications. His main point is to emphasize and establish The husband's headship is something good. His main point isn't to caution husbands. I know you're the head and God did that, but no. His point is to strengthen his exhortation to the wives in light of the God-given authority of their husbands. So we come back to that fundamental question, why is it necessary that the wife be in subjection to her husband? Paul answers, because... The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And then Paul adds rather abruptly, and for some we might think unexplainably, inexplicably, he himself the savior of the body. But I think it's wonderful when we know why Paul said that there. Why did he say it here? And the point seems to be this. That while the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is certainly not the savior of the wife, as Christ is the savior of the church. You may say, well, that's so obvious it doesn't even need to be said. Well, 
Let me, let's, let's go on. It's positive. When, Christ, when Paul says in verse 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How many of us have ever thought to ourselves, well, wait a minute, I thought the husbands were in that church too. Right? Shouldn't we, be all be play, all, shouldn't we be all be playing the role of the wife? Because we're all in the church, husbands and wives together. And in fact, that's Paul's point. This love of Christ for the church, which the husbands are, are to be modeling in their loving of their wife, is actually a love that includes both husbands and wives together. When Paul says in verse 26, Christ sanctified his bride. Who's in the bride? Are husbands in the bride? I sure hope so. And wives, we're all in the bride. And he's cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So both husbands and wives together. Paul says in verse 27, Christ will present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is to say that he will present to himself husbands and wives together in the bride, which is his church. So husbands no less than wives are part of Christ's bride. Therefore, the wife's relationship with God, which is the ultimate reality, the ultimate thing that matters, is not mediated through her husband any more than a child's relationship is mediated through his parents. The wife's relationship with God is mediated through Christ alone. Without mediator, without any in-between, He himself, as Paul says, he himself, he alone being the savior of the body, which includes husbands, wives, children, everyone. But we say, isn't that so obvious? It's insulting. Paul even feels the need to point that out. I don't think we should say that for two reasons. If we give the immediately preceding words their full weight, and then if we understand Paul's positive emphasis. So here's how it goes. Paul is saying this, wives, to encourage you, to give you perspective as you live out your Christianity in this unique place. It's as if Paul would say to the wives, while your husband is indeed your head, even as Christ is head of the church, nevertheless, Christ alone is your Savior. And so you look not to your husband for sanctification, for cleansing by washing of water and the word. You look directly and only to Christ and to Christ alone. You say, well, I know that already. No, no, we say, oh, yeah. You look not to your husband for your ultimate security and peace and fulfillment. Now, some might be tempted to, others are not, right? They're not at all. But whether, wherever you might be in that spectrum, we look to, he, Paul is saying to you, you look to Christ and to Christ alone for your security, for your peace, for your fulfillment. And so now it's in that light that can we see how it's precisely this fundamental equality in Christ. It is that equality that frees the believing wife to live in subjection to her husband. Because she gets the equality. And she loves the equality, and she glories in the equality. And from that perspective of that equality in Christ, she is freed to live in subjection to her husband. It's precisely this fundamental equality then that enables the wife to be so wholly secure 
in Christ that she's able to subject herself to her husband who wears her head. And we might get that logically, and I hope we do, but then when it comes right down to it, sometimes we've got the Spirit of God has to do the work in us. I would say to children, maybe, maybe at times your, your father in particular or your mother is, is exasperating. But if you're in Christ, you have such a security in the equality that you share with your parents in Christ, in the salvation that is the same to all. That from that place of security, you are free to live out your Christianity in subjection to your parents. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He himself, the savior of the body. And then, our interpretation of that last phrase explains Paul's but, which otherwise is, again, kind of strange. Because it's a strong adversative, it's a strong but. He says, but... As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives must be subject to their husbands in everything. Paul's but tells us he's going back now to reemphasize his previous point. So it's like this. Here's his logic. Christ's uniqueness as the only savior of both husbands and wives does not mean the wife has no other head but Christ. Or that she is called to be subject to no man, but only to Christ. Uh, oftentimes, we're going to, I'll come to this at the very end, in just a minute, when we, when we come to the, maybe not just, um, today, we emphasize there is no male or female, right, in, in the church. No male or female. And so the the thought is, therefore, that the gospel with Christ, the coming of Christ, all of those distinctions of like uh, of headship and submission, as they were, we we say worked out in the Old Testament. It's not like that in the New Testament. But Paul's point is that we have the gospel, and then actually flowing out of from that gospel, we still have these distinctions. It's the gospel that underlies the equality, and it's the gospel that underlies the distinctions. Both. Even though, Paul says, even though Christ himself is, a sa- is savior of the body, nevertheless, as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives must be subject to their husbands in everything. So Paul writes in another place, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So when it comes to the husband and the wife, There's complete equality in worth and value before God. So let's unpack that equality in three ways. Number one, they're equally made in the image of God. So they're equally human in the image of God. Number two, they're equally heirs or potential heirs of the grace of life. So we have two believing husband and wife especially. They're equal heirs of the grace of life. One of them is not an heir through the other. They're just equally heirs, side by side together, the grace of life. And number three, their differing roles in the marriage relationship are of equal worth and importance. Differing roles of equal worth and importance. There's a lot of equality there. But there's very much inequality in terms of authority and subjection. 
And it has to be that way, necessarily so. And here's something exciting. So watch this. I said it earlier, and now we come to it. Subjection is not the wife's role. Just as authority or headship, you could say, is not the husband's, well, headship might be more so. I'm going to take authority is not the husband's role. So what is subjection if it's not the wife's role? What is subjection? It is that which enables the wife to fulfill her role. As a helpmate. As the one who was made because it was not good for the man to be alone. So, Paul's in everything. Are you praying for understanding? Are we praying for insight and perception? Because I cannot explain this clearly enough for us to get it. We have to, we have, to have the Spirit of God give us understanding. Paul's in everything. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands in everything. It means at all times. It doesn't mean in just the spiritual areas. or It just means at all times and in every area of life. Obviously, barring times when subjection would mean direct disobedience to God's command, we could talk about issues of abuse. We could talk about those things. We could, we're not going to hear. Paul doesn't hear. He, he's not dealing with that. Let's look at just the positive right now. In a counseling situation, we need to go into those things. And we could hear. But in everything means at all times, in every area of life. What Paul is saying as one commentator says, is that no part of the wife's life should be outside of her relationship to her husband and outside of subordination to him. Let me put it like this. What is subjection? It is not a necessary evil because of the fall. Because now husbands and wives are going to disagree and at the end of the day you're going to have to have someone make the decision so husband gets to do it. That's not what subjection is. Subjection existed in the garden before the fall. Subjection is not a necessary evil held in reserve for those times when all efforts have been exhausted to reach agreement and so as we've used the analogy before we pull it out of the bag and okay this solves the problem. Subjection within the marriage relationship is a way of life. It's all-encompassing. It's a spirit, an attitude, a lifestyle. It's that which daily, in your handout, equips and empowers the wife to fulfill her holy calling as an equal heir with her husband of the grace of life. And there's beauty bursting from that. Where does the ugliness come in? It comes through our perversions. Through our our sin. It's, It's this subjection in everything. Because by now we know that subjection is something fuller, deeper, broader, than just, oh, okay, I disagree with him here, but I guess I'll go along. 
in, that, in this instance. No, it's, it's something, it's a lifestyle. And so when we understand this picture of subjection, it helps us to understand and perceive the true beauty of verses like these in Proverbs 31. An excellent wife, who can find? Her worth is far above pearls. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She deals bountifully with him for good and not evil all the days of her life. She watches over the ways of her household. Her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he also praises her, saying, Many daughters have done excellently, but you have gone above them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give to her from the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. We already know from the rest of Ephesians that Christ's headship over the church is the empowering context for his love of the church. We'll talk about that a little more next week. He's the head, and as a result of being the head, his love for the church is effectual in a way that it could not be if he wasn't the head. And so we also see from the rest of Ephesians that the church's subjection to Christ's headship, including husbands and wives together, can only bring about the fuller experience of his love. As I subject myself to his headship, I open myself up to the experiencing of his love. What does that then tell us about a wife's subjection to her earthly husband? Here's what I've said in the past and will continue to say to brides on their wedding day. If your husband is called to love you, just as Christ loved his bride, you're free to enjoy being loved by your husband. And it's in part, in part, that you might be empowered to enjoy your husband's love to the fullest. And and again, I want to say I'm I'm not talking here about a romantic love. There might be a part of that, certainly. I mean, I I hope there's romantic love. That's good. But I'm not talking about romantic love. But through this subjection, you'll be empowered to enjoy your husband's love to the fullest. I'm sorry. It's, it's, It's as a result of this, with this goal, that God calls you to live in subjection to your husband. So may your subjection to your husband, and I'm sure the husbands are listening, May your subjection to your husband always be the context for the fuller enjoyment of his love. Again, not necessarily a romantic love, even as the church's subjection to Christ is always the context for the fuller enjoyment of his love. Husbands, are we listening? Is this preparing us already for next week? So all this may sound idealistic. We're all at different places. We have marriages that are at various places. We could listen to this and we could despair. We could be like, well, that's nice for an ideal. Um, Again, we could be at all different places here. And, And it is ideal. It is an ideal. But Paul doesn't make apologies for calling us to live out the ideal. And and the, 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 the good news is, the good news is that the gospel is underlying every part of this. So Paul never suggests that the wife should be subject to her husband only if he's loving her as he ought to. Paul isn't taunting husbands. Well, I assume you've got a perfect wife. So 
No, you make sure that you do what you're supposed to be doing. He's not taunting wives. Well, I assume you have this perfect husband so that now you can go fulfill your role. He's not doing that. He never suggests that only if your husband is loving you with a true Christ-like love. The Apostle Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So wives, when your husband is not loving you as he should in the sense of a wise, a wise love, a diligent and faithful love, um, you can still be subject to him in everything in the fear of Christ. And as to the Lord, knowing that his love for you, his love for you, as the true groom, the husband of the church, as your only savior, is always perfect and always unceasing. Here especially, we are reminded that marriage, like every other part of this earthly temporal life, has a goal beyond itself. So this is what enables even an unloved wife to be subject to her husband. I use unloved on an absolute sense. I don't really mean it that way. This is what enables the single person to find fulfillment in Christ apart from marriage. And young women or women who desire to be married and and aren't yet, and this is what should guide you as you think of being prepared for marriage and also of choosing the man to whom you will be called to subject yourself as your head. In the end, a wife's subjection to her husband. I mean, seriously, again, I want to say, and this isn't, this isn't to mitigate the calling on the wife. It's just because I happen to be the husband and not the wife, and I feel this, and I, I'm like, how many husbands here just want to run away right now? In our, in our sinfulness, recognizing our fallenness, our total laziness and failure. A wife's objection to her husband is just one way that she's putting off the old man. Some translations say the old self, but that's wrong. It's not talking about the old self. It's The word is man. And the idea is thinking of the old man. It's referring to Adam. The man that was in Adam. That man. And putting on the new man, which is Christ. It is not I who live, is it? But Christ who lives in me. So as wives, you say to yourself, it is not I who live as wife. It is Christ who lives in me. This new man is the one created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so the Christian wife's subjection to her husband is something to be stood in awe of. It is a sign of her exalted status as one being remade into the image of God. And it's one of the signs that she's a member of the true bride of Christ. And in the case of marriage to a Christian husband, it's the sign she's a member together with her husband of the one true bride of Christ. And so we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that in the church, 
Gentiles are no less privileged than Jews when it comes to access to God through Jesus Christ. So also, wives are no less privileged than husbands, children no less privileged than parents. Paul says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, and we love and embrace those words, though not the way that the world has been shaped, that the church that's been shaped by the world embraces those words. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Parents, children, husbands, wives, if there were masters and slaves here, that too, right? As there was in Paul's context. And yet here's the amazing thing and the wonderful thing. This is what we need wisdom to understand. Even as the gospel levels to the ground, obliterates forever and ever, every imaginable distinction in terms of our access to God through Jesus Christ, it's the same gospel, the same exact one that establishes and reaffirms at the same time the goodness and beauty of a wife's subjection to her husband in everything. What does all this mean for husbands? We're going to try to come back next week and talk about that. There is mystery here. This is what is foolishness to the world, is it not? And to the extent that we still think like the world, it's foolishness to us. But it's a mystery, a wonderful mystery, that in Christ and through his Spirit, we have come or are coming to understand. That we have come to have insight into by faith. So then, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives must be subject to their husbands in everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be Christians. Help us to rejoice, to be, to be courageous. Help us to be faithful and obedient in just simply being Christians. And that's it. That's all. But, but being Christians everywhere. In every part. Please forgive us. Please reveal to us the ways and then forgive us for the ways that we give lip service to being Christians. And then say, but I can't be a Christian here. We confess to you that the reason for that is our sin, but then there's, there's another related to that is just the reason that because of our sin, we just can't see the beauty of being a Christian there. So what I pray with all my heart, and what we, we pray together, that you would help us all to perceive, to have insight into, the wisdom and the goodness and beauty of that wisdom that is revealed in your word, in your will for, for us.
As we do this, then, help us to always be drawing together in one body where there's no distinction uh, to the throne of grace, glorying and exulting in what you have done in us. We thank you for these things and, and help us now. Help us to be preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper as, as our response to this and, and, and as, our, as our desire now, as we sense our need, help us to come to this table for the refreshment as we've already had it from your word. Now let us have it in this meal together. The refreshment of your promises, of your enabling power and work in us, of your cleansing, of your renewing. Help us prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.